Hey guys, you're now listening to the Maranatha House Podcast. Alright guys, um, go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus 7. Yes, Forrest, hello. Hello, my baby. You want to sit with me for a few minutes? Okay, we can do that. Alright, um, let's pray, and then we'll get started. You guys ready? My daddy's phone. Nope, not, not daddy's phone, don't touch it. This is Daddy's phone. If you take it to Mommy and she lets you unlock it and play with it, you can go play with it. Is that what you want? Okay. It's fine. All right. So, Abba, we come before you in the name of Jesus, and we just thank you for today. Lord, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for Exodus and learning so much more about it. I pray that people have learned new things. I pray that they've been challenged. I pray that they are more interested in the Bible. Um, I definitely am. And even just reading ahead yesterday in my quiet time, my devotional time for you, I was thinking about a lot of things and asking you a lot of questions. And um, I just love this book, man. I I really do. And so I pray that, uh, again, that we would learn something new today, that we would uh, be led by your spirit. And uh, we give you all the honor and glory and praise in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right. So, again... If you see something, say something. I'd rather follow your hunger than follow my, my notes, although I like my notes. So um, let's get into it. Intro, again, why are we looking at Exodus? Why have we been looking at it for the past month and a half? Because it's important. It's important because it is the event where Yahweh personally reveals his name, his covenant, and his character to Israel in order to set them apart as a sign and a wonder to all nations. We've already seen Yahweh reveal his name. Pretty soon we'll see him reveal his covenant. And then at the end, he'll reveal his character. And I'm excited. Um, We can see that Exodus is the one story that is the most referenced in the biblical narrative. It is the backbone and basis for how Yahweh saves, making it a type and shadow for the birth, the ministry, and the return of Jesus. Right? We're starting to see some of those similarities play out. It's been really cool. And finally, if we don't take the time to re-examine Exodus from time to time and dive into the deeper things that we think are weird, we will miss the themes that Yahweh put in place to give us greater context for his character and his story. Um, So again, as we get into this today, if you see something weird that you want to point out, point it out. Let's talk about it. Because we had a guest pastor who was on a sabbatical come in last week and hadn't heard I don't even think a quarter of the things that we talked about last week, right? Like a lot of the stuff that we're looking at, the weird stuff isn't talked about on a typical Sunday morning. And I think that that, I think that that is a detriment to our, our walk as Christians because it, it, it doesn't allow us to, to comprehend God in the way that he would like us to. Does that make sense? And so, you know, I know, that my teaching style is different. My preaching style is different. I'm hoping that you guys are getting something out of it because there's so much stuff here, man. There's so much. And I wish I could get into everything. 
but we'd be here all day, so we just won't do that. Um, today we're going to be looking at Exodus 7, verses 14 through chapter 8, verse 19. It's going to be the first three plagues, all right? Um, now, before we do that, we need to go over some things, because Yahweh is such an artist, right? I mean, how many of you guys in here, I know almost all the ladies, I can look at you guys and go, well, I know that you guys do some sort of form of artwork. Like, I've seen you guys do it. It's over your, It's all over your houses. Erica's over there doing it right now. Like, you know, I'm not that creative when it comes to some of these things, although I'm realizing that I am more creative in recent months because of how much construction that I'm doing and how much creativity goes into that. So I'm learning to appreciate creativity a lot more. So I'm going to give you a bunch of background on the plagues before we get into them in hopes that you'll go, man, God really is way more creative and poetic than I thought. Is that cool? Can we go over some basics? All right, let's go over some basics. First is that, what are the plagues? You may be wondering, what are the plagues? Because you've read through them a bunch, you've heard the stories, you've watched The Prince of Egypt, I don't know how many times because we're that generation, and man, does that movie slap. It's such a good movie. Woo! Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey just, hmm. Was that a movie? The Prince of Egypt? No, it wasn't. No. I think it's... So it, was, it was well appreciated. Oh! I thought it was. I, 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 I watched it once and I was like, yeah, okay, okay, cool, that's it. Really? Oh, man. I've watched it. Oh, I think probably Emperor's New Groove. Yeah. Oh, man. Emperor's New Groove? Oh, my goodness. Can I say this to you? Part of why your household watched it so much was John Crawford lived in your house for a while. And it's a movie that John Crawford really likes. That's true. It's true. And then we started celebrating the biblical feast. And so every Passover, we'll watch the movie again, um, which is great. So um, here's, the, here's the funny thing. Plague isn't used until chapter 8, depending on which translation you use. If you're using the King James, the word plague isn't used until chapter 9 or 10. Right. And when you look at the definition of the word plague or any of the other words that are used, what you'll find is that the words that, are, that occur the most in Scripture in, in many translations, not all, again, it depends on how modern of a translation you're going with, um, the words are actually smite or strike, um, and then, of course, plague in English. But they're all variations of the Hebrew word nakah. Now, nakah is a primitive root. It's H5221, if you like the strongest concordance like I do, give you a reference point. It actually means to strike lightly or severely, literally or figuratively, to beat, cast forth, cast forth, clap, uh, give wounds, go forth, indeed, kill, make slaughter, murder, punish, slaughter, slaying, smiting, or smiter, strike, be stricken, stripes, surely wound. What's that sound like? El Shaddai, right? The definition right. for the root word of Shaddai, which is Shaddad, that overpower, that conqueror. Um, and so again, like, I know we kind of talked about this last week. God is both a nurturer and the almighty in the context of the word almighty, though, I don't think the root word could be shod, which would be breast, which would indicate nurturing. I think it is Shaddad because everything surrounding the idea of El Shaddai tends to be, well, God's going to murder and hurt people and defend his people. The thing that we want to get across is that not that God wants to hurt people necessarily God's God's character isn't that he wants to hurt anyone but it is that he loves his people enough to defend them from anything and everything all right 
wonder if that, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, it's okay. Um, but the other translation, like the word you just said, the, um, the shot, um, the two aren't mutually exclusive. No. So like all the mamas in the room, if anyone Mom came there. after your kid, you know, yeah. um, I'm wondering if like that's where the intersection. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah, you, so you can tell how much someone really loves something by how far they're willing to go to defend it, mm-hmm. right? Um, I give this example all the time because people have literally, like, they have fought me on it. On, and and, and uh, the Ten Commandments, one of them is thou shalt not murder. Specifically says murder. Some translations are mistranslated and say thou shalt not kill. The commandment is thou shalt, the commandment is not thou shalt not kill. God gives special permission for things in the Bible for being able to kill something. And one of them is specifically if someone breaks into your home in the middle of the night and you kill them, you get off scot-free. There's no punishment for that. Right? And so when you're talking to people who want to say, well, the commandment is thou shalt not kill. We shouldn't be killing anybody or anything ever. It's a complete mistranslation or misunderstanding of God's word because if I truly love my family and the Bible says that as a father, as the head of the household, as a man of God, if I don't take care of my family, I'm worse than a non-believer. And that word non-believer there isn't just like, oh, they don't believe in God. It means a Gentile who worships other gods, who does all this profanity. I'm worse than that if I don't take care of my family. So if somebody breaks in and tries to kill or hurt my family... I have full permission from God to go ham on that guy and not care about it because I love my family so much that I'm willing to go above and beyond to protect him. And when you look at the character of God and his people, he does the same thing. And so a lot of the times when people have arguments against Yahweh and against Christianity and Judaism as a whole, I see you, I'm going to get to you in a second. Um, one of their arguments is that how can, an all, how can a loving God do all this crazy stuff to all these other people groups? And it's like, well, God, gave liter- God literally gives all of them a chance to turn to him and become his people. But because they refuse, his covenant isn't with them. It's with his people and he loves his people enough to do whatever it takes to protect them and to bring them out and to deliver them. And so when we look at this, we don't go, oh my gosh, I can't believe God did all this ter- all these terrible things to people. We look at this and we go, oh my gosh, look at how often God warned Pharaoh. Look at how often God tried to extend mercy. Look at how often he did this, but the, that, that people, that person group still refused. And so God had to say, okay, well, the people who actually are mine and choose to follow me, I have responsibility to protect them as a kind and loving father and I will protect them. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so like you're saying, it is, it is, it is both. Um, But we can't, if we're going to, so I'll say this, if we're going to overemphasize one point, I think we need to overemphasize the point that is, that becomes more and more clear with scripture in context to like what the word is. And so, as much as Shaddad is like that nourishing and he's nourishing to us, uh, or Shad is nourishing to us, the Shaddad, which is that over overpowering, like I'm going to take the charge here. I am the almighty is becomes more prevalent as the story progresses because of how much adversity is about to come Israel's way. Does that make sense? I probably just rambled a lot for no reason. No, that's interesting. So. Well, Shaddad, I feel like encompasses both. 
the nurture and the protection. Shad feels like it's just the nurturing aspect of it. Right. So I feel like Shadad is a more complete, like what you're saying, it's a complete picture of yeah. what it means for El Shaddai. I don't know if that's true. I was going to say, I went back yeah. briefly to the genealogy from last week. Uh, the name Phineas came up. Phineas is a priest um, for God's people um, who becomes high priest because of his zeal for God, where he mm -hmm. takes a spear and kills a heretic and a priestess um, who are doing stuff. Um, and in his actual reward for it is God is like, your line is going to be the high priest now. Yeah. So not only does God sometimes command it, he actually rewards it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Ready to keep going? Let's keep going. All right. So um, let's talk about this. How are the strikes set up? So I've kind of been trying to change my the way that I think about this because they're not really plagues. Like very few of them actually have to do with sicknesses. Right? And so they really are more strikes. And you can think about this as like 10 strikes and you're out because that's really like kind of what happens, right? Um, or you can look at it as like punishment, you know? As a father, if my kids continue to act terribly and they won't listen to reason, I can't reason with them, then the last course of action is a nice little spanking, a nice little strike. And what happens after that? They usually fall back in line. They're disciplined enough to realize, okay, I was being a little over-emotional. I was doing things the wrong way. And so when we look at this, we can look at it in a couple different ways. We can look at it in a baseball theme, right? Ten strikes, you're out. Bye-bye, Pharaoh. We can look at it as spankings because one of the – Strikes? Did you say ten strikes? Yeah, ten strikes and you're out. Because in baseball, there's three, but in the Bible, there's ten. Oh, oh. It was an, I'm using analogies. Look, I've never seen a baseball game listening for the last two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Angel hasn't been listening for the last two minutes. He missed your whole Dang it. <laughs> I knew I rambled for too long. I don't know what's more than that. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, like, no, I don't care what kind of vocabulary you guys are going to use, okay? You can continue to call them Tim Plagues. For the sake of my own enjoyment... Today we're going to call them strikes because I think that lines up a little bit better in the Hebrew and in biblically. So bear with me, okay? When, it, when I say strike, I mean plague. So um, the ten strikes have a poetic stri structure similar to that of Genesis 1. Um, so in Genesis 1, what we find is that we have um, – there are seven days. And then the days are broken up into two sections. Days 1 through 3 is a poetic structure. Days uh, four through six is a poetic structure. And then day seven stands by itself. It stands alone because it's the Sabbath. It's the holy day. And so what we find is that the nine strikes are actually broken up into three groups of three. With each group, the strike begins at the end of the chapter. Um, this is a call back to Genesis 1 with the biblical day starting at sunset, not sunrise. Isn't that interesting? I find that very interesting. Um, Genesis 1 is broken up poetically into two sets of three days. The tenth strike stands alone just as the seventh day in Genesis 1 stands alone. Isn't that interesting? Um, so each set begins with Yahweh telling Moses to approach Pharaoh in the morning. Isn't that interesting? Um, so we'll see Moses approach Pharaoh in the morning three times. And then... At some point during the second or the third strike of the set, a variation of phrases appears. The first one being that you may know that I am the Lord. 
Keep in mind, the whole point of this first section of, of Exodus is for Yahweh to reveal his name and what he wants associated with his name. So these plagues, when they, when they happen, when these strikes happen against Pharaoh, he'll say, because I want you to know that I'm the Lord. I am the one that is protecting my people and I will make sure my people get what I'm commanding them to go do. Does that make sense? He wants Pharaoh to know that because later on what ends up happening, you know, Egypt is the most powerful, one of the most powerful countries at this time period. And so when Egypt falls to Yahweh and Israel, because Israel is such a small nation at this point, not even a full nation, um, what we find is that uh, this goes far, this goes far and wide. And every people group know who Yahweh is after this, right? The second one is that you should fear the Lord. One of the reasons, I mean, man, dude, there's some things that, there's some things that the, the love of God brings us out of and delivers us from. And there's some things that the fear of the Lord delivers us from. And that's something that uh, God wants to get across to his people, his people later in Exodus but in this first section, he wants to get it across to Egypt and Pharaoh because Pharaoh considers himself a god. And, he's, and Yahweh is saying, no. What the heck? How'd you do that? Stop it with your feet. Um, so Yahweh is trying to get across to him that he is not a god and that he should actually fear the Lord. Right. And the third one is that there is no one or no god like the Lord our God. Those are the three phrases that we're going to see play out here. And they're all, I mean, they're all basically variations saying the same thing. Um, but they're important because like, I, like, like we've been talking about, Yahweh is trying to reveal who he is. And the more that we get that in our heads, that he is, he is our God who wants to deliver us from the serpent, no matter what form the serpent takes, that he's willing to go above and beyond to protect us and be our defender then the more that becomes real to us, the more it builds our faith and the more we begin to see Yahweh and Jesus work in that way in our lives. Does that make sense? Okay, cool. So um, there's an Elohim polemic here. Now, like we talked about in uh, the intro to Exodus, a polemic is a contrast. So what Yahweh is going to be doing here is he's going to contrast himself against many, 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 many Egyptian Elohim or Egyptian gods um, during these 10 strikes. And this polemic is to show that there is no God, there's no Elohim like Yahweh. In Exodus 15, 11, um, during the song of Moses and Miriam, uh, one of the things that they sing is, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods or the Elohim? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds and doing wonders? Um, you know, this is important for how we see stop that. A lot of the other a lot of the rest of the Bible play out because uh, the Hebrews did believe that there were other gods. They were monotheistic themselves because they believed in the one true God, but that didn't stop them from knowing that other people groups had other um, other mythologies and and other pantheons. And the point here is to show that Yahweh is stronger than all of them. I mean, the entire pantheon could come against them and Yahweh would still snap his fingers and they would be over and done with, right? Like he is the creator of all the other gods. He's the creator of all the other El Elohim and there's no one like him. Did they, sorry. Um, yes. 
Did the ancient Israelites believe that there were no gods other than God, or did they believe there were no gods more powerful? That there are no gods more powerful. So the word Elohim is more of a characteristic. It's uh, it relates more to there being a, a spiritual being, and so we in the English we translate it as God. It's a really poor translation because not obviously none of them are actually God, um, but. You know, for the sake of English vocabulary, like they believed in lowercase gods that were other Elohim, that were spiritual beings that, in all for all intents and purposes, took um, took credit for a lot of the things that that God would do, that Yahweh would do. Um, we see in both Psalm eighty-two and Psalm eighty-nine that. Uh, God is speaking to this divine council of other Elohim, of other spiritual beings, and he's actually judging them because their whole purpose was to be Elohim over territories and point the people back to Yahweh, and they refuse to do that, so they get judged for that. Later on in Hebrews, it says, don't you know that you're going to judge the angels? Well, those are the angels that we're supposed to be judging later on when we get into eternity. And so there's a whole mess of theology around it. I'm going to sprinkle a little bit there to wet whistles if you guys want to talk about it later. But there's a lot that goes into it. And it, it gets a little... Once you once you see it, you can't unsee it. And there's just so much information that goes into it. And I would just get... Carried away. Hmm? I said you'll get carried away. 100%. 100%. So, all right. So get this. Um, here's a little picture of how this is going to be set up in the 10 plagues in this Elohim polemic. So in the first plague, there are three gods that Yahweh attacks here. It's so cool. Yeah, it's really... Yeah, Yeah, it's... I mean, I I can't take credit for making this, but when I found it and I was like, this lines up with everything I've studied, I was like, I'm just going to snag it. The concept of him being like, I'm the baddest of them all. Yeah, yeah. Um, Super, it's super interesting. So... Um, we'll see this kind of play out and we'll, we'll talk about those gods a little bit. I'm not going to talk about them a lot today because I'm trying to intro the plagues and do the first three for you guys, but angel and whoever does the rest of them will, will probably talk about them a little bit more. Um, what's interesting is that, um, the first two plagues we're going to see the magicians are actually able to duplicate. Um, and then by the third one, they're like, now nah, we give up. Yeah. We can't do it. Our gods aren't powerful enough to do this, um, which is really interesting. And then in the third one, what we actually see is that it's attributed to the finger of God. Remember last week when we read about Jesus delivering people from demons by the finger of God, touching them? Isn't that interesting? Um, so again, that whole aspect of God's power being delivered by his mighty hand, his fingers connected to his hand, like um, begins to show up. Uh <clears throat> By the fourth plague, God begins to make a separation between the Israelites and the Egyptians. And so these first three plagues affect everybody. And then the last uh, seven don't touch the Egyptians at all, which is fascinating. The Egyptians? I mean, the Israelites. It doesn't doesn't touch the Israelites at all. Um, So. uh, Which is interesting. The tenth one might have been able to had they not followed Passover rules. 
Bruh. When we talk about the tenth one. Say that again. So in, with the tenth one, the, there's a Passover rule. You're supposed to kill a lamb. You're supposed right. to take its blood, put it on your doorpost. That's how the angel of God knows to skip over right. that house. So in theory, if an Israelite doesn't follow Passover, doesn't put the blood on the on the uh, doorpost. They would have lost they might not have skipped over the house. Yeah. Well, what's interesting, too, is that when you read that section, there are many Egyptians that end up following and doing the Passover. And there are many Egyptians and other people groups that were living in Egypt at that time that follow Egypt out or follow Israel out of Egypt and become a mixed multitude that eventually gets grafted in. Gentiles that get grafted into Israel at that time period. In fact, when you look when you look forward in time and you see Moses send the 12 spies into Canaan and they go up to Jericho. Um, and the two, the only two spies that aren't afraid are Joshua and Caleb. Caleb is a Gentile. Caleb is not an Israelite at all. In fact, his name means dog. So, which is fascinating because later on in the gospels, there's this lady whose daughter is possessed by a demon and, G- and she goes to Jesus and she's like, please deliver my daughter from this demon. And Jesus goes, Healing is the children's bread. You don't get any. Yes, and she goes, yes, but even the dogs eat from the scraps of the table. And it's fascinating because Caleb, the dog, actually gets a portion of Israel, whereas the other Gentiles don't. And Caleb's one of the only people that lives to see the promise. Yes, it's fascinating. So anyway, it, like as a Gentile, stuff like that just makes my heart swoon because I'm like, he really does care. And he cared the whole time, but we missed it. And it's just anyway. Um, so there are a lot of like little things that we'll begin to see play out here. Um, the, whoever's going to be teaching after this will have access to this so that you guys can kind of see it again and you can take a picture of it, whatever. I'll send the file out if you want. Um, so a lot of little, just interesting notes on the side. Many, as you can see here, there are many, many, many gods. There's only three that attack like a specific God. Um, and the rest of them, because of how the Egyptian pantheon on all the gods and goddesses kind of have an overlap, um, Yahweh is actually just like ripping all of them a new one as he performs each strike. It's amazing. Um, and what, what you're going to see here within the first, uh, within the first, um, or within two, three, and four is one of the big things that you're going to see play out is this whole idea of, a Genesis polemic where each strike actually deconstructs something that from creation, from the creation narrative. And so this is a, this is a polemic to show that Yahweh has total control over his creation, despite how the other Elohim present themselves to the people groups in the world. So the whole thing about the Egyptian pantheon is that they're saying we're all gods and we control these things. We control the Nile, we control the earth, we control the skies, we control the sun. And Yahweh is saying, no, sit down, shut up. I made them, I control them, I can kill them if I want. You have no power here. And so, oh, that's right, I couldn't get the other picture to come up. And so what you're going to see here, specifically in these three, is you're going to see a, and the disease on the cattle, is that you're going to see a deconstruction of the creation narrative, specifically with the frogs in the water. The lice come from the ground or the dirt. The flies are obviously the flying things that are spoken of in Genesis 1. And then the, the cattle are the land creatures that God creates in Genesis 1. So you're going to see God deconstruct 
everything that he creates in Genesis 1, and it's just going to be, I mean, it's going to be rad. It's going to be fascinating. It's, it just goes to show how powerful he is, and I just love Sorry, it. Sorry, I don't understand. Can you sure. um, run it by me again? Like, like I, I don't understand. Like, it's not processing. Sure. So, what you're going to see is a deep, deep, so. I mean, I understand the words you're saying, but what it, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not seeing the connection. Can you help me? Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to try to help you because I'm trying to understand where you're at. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that we see, obviously, in the Ten Plagues is Yahweh fighting against, performing spiritual warfare against the other Mommy. gods of that time period. Wait, hang on one second. I'm actually, he, he just gave me these kind of grapes and he told me to eat them like that. Let me see. Um, I probably can't. Mr. Can, Mr. Can. Okay, okay. Well, as long as he's watching you like a hawk while you eat them, then that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I want that. Is, is, um, I mean, I, I kind of look for a little bit, but yeah. Sure. Alright, hey, Isabel. Isabel, Miss Monica's gonna help you. Thank you so much. Hi. Hi, Force. Um, so, one of the things that the Egyptian gods take responsibility for is creating the earth, being in control of the different elements and things that are going on at that time period. So one of the things that Yahweh is going to do here is he doesn't just perform spiritual warfare against them. He actually, um, each part of his spiritual warfare isn't just an attack on them. It's also a decreation narrative as opposed to his creation narrative of Genesis 1. And so, that's, that's the part that I'm struggling with. Yeah, so yeah. Is, it, is it like in reverse order or it's um, it's not in the exact reverse order because it's not like, it's not like he starts from a Sabbath rest and then goes, yeah. goes backwards. But what you, what you see happen is that in, you don't see it in the English because English just sucks as a language at times. But in the Hebrew, what you see is the same wordplay that happens in Genesis oftentimes. And so for instance, um, This is going to be easier to explain when we actually get into the plagues. Can we, okay, get, yep, yep. Can we get it? Okay. You can ask me more questions when we get into it. Because if I yeah, start yeah, now, okay. then it's going to... I don't need to sidetrack. No, no, no. It's a great question. It's a great question. And I want you guys to get it because I want you guys to see how powerful Yahweh is. And so... Hold on to it and bring it back. Yeah. Hold on to it. We'll bring it back. Um, let's start reading. So uh, who wants to read the first plague for me? We'll do Genesis 7... Or, I'm sorry. Exodus seven fourteen through 25. Who wants to start? I'll do it. Do it! Uh, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. Take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with a staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all of their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all of the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the 
uh, side of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all of the water in the Nile turned to blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all of the land of Egypt, but the, magi the magicians of Egypt did not did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. All right. So, what did you guys notice besides the word harden, unless you really want to say the word harden? Seven. Again. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Seven days. What's that remind you of? Creation. Creation, right? Seven oh, days. All right, so before we get into the polemics that happen here, let's talk about this word harden here because this is the first time that this particular word harden happens in, the, in uh, Exodus. And this word is different um, for, for several different reasons. And it's very important because whereas the other words just meant to strengthen yourself, to become more fierce, it had to do with Pharaoh hardening his own heart versus God hardening it. Um, this is where things get really tricky because this word means to become heavy or burdensome, kabed, um, and uh, it's rooted in the word, it, it has the same root word as the word glory in the Old Testament, which is chabad, um, which also means to be heavy. And so when we talk about, in, in charismatic circles, when you talk about the Shekinah glory and God's glory entering a room, and people are like, I feel as light as a feather. It's probably not God's glory. When God's glory enters into a room, it gets so hot and heavy in a room that you can't help but drop to your knees. Biblically speaking. Forrest James, leave that alone, please. Leave it. Get out of here. No, stop it. Here, take that song. Get a little stinker. Here you go. Look. So... Going back to this word kabade, um, this is important because according to Egyptian mythology, if the heart was found to be heavier than a feather, it was fed to Amut, the devourer, and the soul was cast into darkness. If the scales were balanced, the deceased had passed the test and was taken before Osiris who welcomed them into the afterlife. Pharaoh's heart isn't just strong or tough anymore. It is now becoming heavy, which is a sign of evil doing. And he knew that? Do you think he was aware that his heart was becoming hardened? It's, I mean, the reason we know most of this stuff is it's all in, like, paintings. So, like, traditionally Anubis um, balances the scales, and the feather is a representation of, like, truth and justice. And it's Osiris that actually takes the heart and puts it on the scale. And Osiris is, I, I think the pharaoh is supposed to be, like, either Osiris' son or a representation of Osiris or something along those lines. So my guess would be, yeah, he would know. Yeah, Although, like he was willingly like yeah. making poor choices and hardening his heart. Though it's specifically Moses writing it that's like, haha, his heart's getting heavier. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, I like Cam's answer. It's better than mine. My answer is I don't know. Because <laughs> the Bible doesn't explicitly say and 
I don't know enough about Egyptian mythology other than what the Bible kind of hints at. Yeah. To really. I don't even know why. I'm gonna be honest. To really okay. care, I really don't care about Egyptian mythology. I think it's. <laughs> it's. I was weird, just noticing but it's things. Yeah. Like if he was very aware of this mythology. Yeah. He would know he's kind of heading in the wrong direction. Well, Moses definitely mm-hmm. does because he was raised in Pharaoh's house. So he yeah. knew all about the Egyptian pantheon. He knew all about Egyptian mythology. And Pharaoh does too because he yeah. like he thinks he's a god himself. Yeah. Right? So yeah. um, so whether or not Pharaoh knew that's where his heart was going is another thing entirely. Because I don't know about you guys, but oftentimes when I'm deep in sin, I'm blinded by it. Yeah. I need someone to come tell me. And even then, if I'm blinded enough, I don't listen. But even in this, I find it a little bit different because uh, having a heavy heart has nothing to do with willpower, but more to do with justice. In their eyes at this point, it had more to do with being a good, being a just person. Yeah. But the heavy heart that we're seeing kind of illustrated by the Bible is not a just, it's not a heavy heart with justice, it's heavy heart with like, you're just so hard-headed, you're not willing to listen. So it's kind of like different, it's not the heart of heart that he's chasing after. But, but his heart becomes hard. Yeah. So with also, injustice. Yeah. But it's also you, you have to think like in practical terms. If if you're fair, he's probably asking himself, well, if you go, who's going to build the pyramids? You know. Yeah. Who's gonna, who's gonna, who's gonna, who's gonna, you know. Basically, if, if we can't if we can't make you work for us, you know, who's yeah. going to do the work? You know. His justice is very subjective. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Cool. So what else do you notice? Something interesting is um, the devourer and now Sobek are both shown as having crocodile heads. Mm-hmm. Um, Egypt has a fascinating way of like taking their animals, their Elohim, yeah, and an- not only anthropomorphi- anthropomorphizing them, yeah, so that they have the bodies of humans in most cases. I mean, it's special and doesn't, um, but then putting an animal head, yeah, on them, yeah. Yes. I wouldn't have known that if you'd brought it up. Cause like I said, I really didn't look into the Egyptian mythology yeah. enough. Amun is interesting because she's the blending of the three biggest fan eaters in Egypt. Um, she's like the crocodile head, a lion's body, and then like the hindquarters of a hippopotamus or something. Yeah. Mm. I know That's all crazy. this from Moon Knight. That's the only reason I know. What a good show. I did, actually, but it's been so long since I've seen Stargate. I was also really obsessed with Egyptology when I was really young. Like, that was, like... It's interesting. Yeah, it's so it's one of those things, yeah. Like, yeah. In, like, in, like in school and, like, the social studies classes, they covered three things, right? They covered ancient Egypt, the American Revolution, and then in my case, they covered the Mayflower, because it grew up in Canada. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's so much you can you know, go yeah. into there. Yeah. Yeah. Does anybody else notice, well, so let's talk about the, the gods that, that, the Elohim that are challenged by the blood and the water. So there's Sebek or Kanum, depending on who you're talking to, the same basic god. He's the guardian of the river source. So he's the one who's, um, Again, crocodiles he's, found in the river. Yeah, crocodile yeah. found in the river. There's Hopi, who is the spirit of the Nile. Um, the god of annual, the annual flooding of the Nile every year. The Nile floods. She's supposedly the, supposed to be the goddess that floods the Nile every year. I believe, if I remember correctly, her head is a frog. Um, we can check it. Um, not to be confused with Hakwet, who we talked about in Exodus one, 
which we'll talk about in the next play because she comes up again because she's a frog head. Um, and then Osiris, who's one of the main gods of Egypt, it was believed that the Nile was actually his bloodstream. Is that why God turned it to blood? I think that's part of it. He was attacking Osiris specifically as being one of the chief gods. But it's also Yahweh is trying to remind Egypt of the fact that they killed so many bo- so many Israelite boys in the Nile. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So. Poppy is androgynous. And isn't, isn't portrayed with her face. Okay. Apparently. Weird, because with some of the research that I did, I definitely found her as a frog goddess at some point, but it's all right. So, uh, I'm just looking at Wikipedia. You might be right. Yeah. I might be wrong. So yeah. let's talk about the decreation narrative. You guys already pointed out that the, that the, the Nile is blood for seven days, right? That reminds us of, of the, of Genesis one, right? The seven days. So let's look at this. Day two is represented here on day two. Yahweh separates the waters chaos and brings them into order, right? Because oops, Everything that God does uh, is done decently and in order, according to the New Testament. And so the creation narrative, in a lot of ways, is God bringing order into the world. Jordan Peterson has a lot. I don't know how much of a Christian he is at times, but his whole uh, Genesis um, lecture series is all about God bringing order into a world full of chaos. And so this is, this is, a, this is a big theme in Genesis 1 whether you like psychology or not. It is a big theme in Genesis 1. And so what, what is happening here is that God actually reintroduces chaos and disorder to the Nile by turning it to blood and killing all the fish and sea creatures that are in it. So rather than it being decently and in order and things being living like they're supposed to be, it becomes chaotic and everything dies. In a way that no one can ignore. Right, in a way that no one can ignore. Um, the, the flooding in the Nile is what actually provides water to all of the farmland right. around it. Right. So another thing that I think is, is interesting here. So God starts strong and he ends strong. So Yahweh starts off by striking Egypt's lifeblood, the Nile. The Nile is where they get their water. It's where their economy thrived. It's where most of their like big transportation happened. All of their pyramids are built along streams that lead to the Nile. Well, used to be, things have dried up now, so it's hard to tell. But at this time period, I mean, this is a big- get the stones there. Right, this is a big strike to Egypt. God's, God's like, I mean business. This is, this is the first strike, right? Um, so when I say that this is a decreation narrative or that I'm saying that this is a deconstruction of what God created in Genesis one, this is what I mean. We're gonna begin to see the same things that happen in Genesis 1 play out in Exodus. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question a little bit better? Okay. There, we got two more that we're going to look at, so we'll keep going. Um, so let's read through uh, 8, uh, verse 1 through verse 15. Who wants to read that for me? I can do it. Do it. 8, 1 through 15. Yep, 1 through 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servant and your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come to you and on your people and on all your servants. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools, and let frogs come up on the land out of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the, magi the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made the frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses, Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take the frogs from me and my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me, be pleased to commend me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people. The frogs be cut off from you and your house and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your house and your servants and your people. They shall only be left in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs, as he agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frog died out in the houses, in the courtyards, in the fields. And they, they gathered them in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. He a fool. Yeah. That would be my worst nightmare. There's frogs everywhere yeah. in your bed. In your, in your red bowls. That was um, serving the Lord. Uh, That's crazy. Yeah. Um, also, sorry. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> There's a remix. I realize that these magicians are doing the same thing that was already done. Yeah. I don't know like what was the value in that in trying like because I'm thinking oh, he's like okay. Right. Yeah. But wouldn't it have been more of a proof? that the Lord's not so powerful for them to undo what mm -hmm. he was doing as opposed yeah. to just do more yeah. than what he did? Yeah. Like, weren't, they just to discredit, weren't they just trying to discredit okay, Aaron? Yeah, so it was just like, well, if you can do it, we can do it. Like, yeah. our God is as strong as your God. Yeah. Maybe but I see so, what you're saying. Like, it would have been stronger to be like, yeah, make it <laughs> stop. Because especially with the Nile, now I didn't, I never noticed this before, but with the Nile being blood, for seven days, y'all so powerful you can turn water to blood. Okay, how about you so powerful that you can make this back water again, or make this right. turn back into water again? Yeah. That seems like a better proof that the Lord's not so mighty. Yeah. <laughs> also, about how long a human can last without water? It's what five five days? I thought it was three. But they were digging around the Nile to yeah. try to find other wells. Yeah, that's true. But that's <laughs> I don't know. Well, undo it then. Yeah. Great points. I mean, but that just goes to show how um, how foolish they were and how blinded they were by their own pride, I think. Because honestly, they didn't care about their own people. They cared about keeping the Israelites. That's their motive right now. Um, well, yeah, because someone's got a slave. <laughs> someone's got to be a slave. Um, so two smaller things have popped out of me. One is Moses is telling Aaron to do this. Mm -hmm. Now it's not Moses doing it with his stick; it's he's he's passing it off, and just yeah. like he did the second half of all the water. Yeah. Um, the other one is it still stinks. Yeah. 
stinks. Yeah, the water still stinks. Well, I mean, think about it. It's not like they cleaned up all the dead oh. fish in it. The, the fish are probably still floating around. Well, I mean, the frogs never on the land. I'll just be thirsty. Well, yeah, because they come out of the water, right? The stinky water. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry, what was that first point that you said? Because it. Aaron. Aaron. Yes. So this is this is uh this is the Lord confirming that Aaron is like a prophet speaking to Pharaoh and doing these signs, and Moses is like God standing behind him in judgment. And so, um, eventually, what we're going to see is is Aaron is going to phase out of the narrative, and Moses is going to phase back in as the plagues get more and more severe. Um, just as you know. God may send a prophet to try to correct us in the beginning, but the less we listen to the prophet, the more the prophet stops talking to us and the Lord begins talking to us and the Lord's voice is going to be way more severe than that prophet typically. And then we'll have to face God's judgment too. So um, that's that's what's going to play out here within the next couple chapters. So before we get into the creation narrative here, which I'm sure you guys have probably started to spot a little bit, um, we'll, we'll look at the Elohim that are challenged here. There's Hapi and Hakwet. They're both frog goddesses. Hakwet specifically has a frog head. We looked at her in Exodus 1. And both of these Elohim um, aren't just frogs, but they're also related to fertility. So one of the reasons why God specifically points out that the frogs are going to be in your bedroom and in your bed. Well, where are babies made? Yep. Right, so it's basically, I'm gonna, I'm going to prevent you from having more children. Uh, he, he not, not more, but he, for the time period, he's like, yeah. I'm, I'm for gonna. Time, you're you're, yeah, rolling, no around, be, you're yeah. rolling around in bed, squishing yeah. frogs. Yeah. 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 yeah, no, yeah, no one's gonna be. This is bad. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, resist, resist the urge to say worse things right now. The interesting piece with that is that's the. Yeah. That's the god or goddess that does the, the water from the Nile. Right. So it's the frogs coming from right. the Nile. Right. So you're looking. You're looking at. You're looking at Hopi, the goddess who is a goddess of the Nile, right? Mm-hmm. And then Hakwet, who is the frog goddess that breathes life into the clay creations that her husband creates on her potter's wheel. Right. And so this is a double, again, double whammy. God is saying, "Hey, the Nile." You threw my babies in it, and they don't have life anymore. So I'm poking fun at the Nile goddess and your goddess of life and fertility as well. Isn't that interesting? Forrest needs to stop touching my stuff. All right, decreation narrative. What did you notice? Pretend that's not up there. Let me go back. (laughs) Dang it. I got excited. I get excited. Sorry. Sorry, 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 sorry. All right. Thinking... A little bit, not necessarily. Not necessarily what he's getting at. Because no procreation happens within those first seven days that we know of. Sorry, what was the question again? She said Adam and Eve, and I said a little bit, but not really. Well, like making Adam and then making Eve Adam? I'm jumping again. I'm just trying to fill. That's fine. No. Can you repeat the question in context? Let's look at this story and go... How does this fit in? What, what reminds us of Genesis 1 here? What reminds us of Genesis 1 when we're looking at the frogs? The, the strike that is the frogs. Is there any aspect of, I'm asking more because I don't remember, of things coming out of the waters in Genesis? 
He makes things in the waters. He makes things in the waters. Okay. In the red piles. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The chaos monster. Uh-huh. Keep going. The, the waters of the deep. Yep, keep playing it. No, keep playing it out. You're on the right track. He's being a GM now going... Yeah. Roll again. Come on. Roll for perception. In terms of evolution, right? You had creatures come out of the water onto the land. Is that? You're getting there. Let's see what else you guys can figure out. Keep that. Keep that thought. Keep that thought for a second. Hold on to it. Don't let it go. Hold on loosely, though. It's not gonna hurt. Go ahead. What were you saying? I just started reading Genesis. Oh. <laughs> cheater. Cheater, cheater, pumpkin eater. Is it cheating or is no. it efficiency? No, it's... Mm. Doing your homework. Everything with Yahweh is an open book test. If you fail, you get to try again. Um, just go back let, to... Just the part with let the water swarm with the swarms of living creatures? But that doesn't feel like a... Is that it? Well, let's look at it. Because again, like... There's not a lot that, I mean, there's a lot that happens in Be Genesis 1. And multiply and fill the waters and the seas. That's what you told the things mm-hmm. that made in the seas. All right, so let's look at this for a second. Day 5, Genesis 1, verses 20 through 23. It's what you just read, right? Okay, day 5. So let's look at this for a second. Yahweh chose to bring chaos to the fifth day by getting rid of how the animals were ordered by bringing forth an amphibian to plague the land. This is a form of disorder because the frogs are neither fish, sea creatures, or land animals. Um, They represent disorder by being both, which is what the word amphibian means in Greek, living both in the water and on land. Isn't that interesting? There's definitely like separation here. There's there's a clear separation between them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes we can get so focused on things that we miss the clear, simple answer. Sometimes it really is just the clear, simple answer. The first plague, there had a lot to it. The second plague, the second strike does not have a lot to it, and that's okay. We don't have to read into it more than what is actually there. Okay? And the reason why I said for you to hold on to it is because the frog is this, not necessarily the idea of evolution as a whole, but it is this type of animal that could be argued for evolution because it is neither living completely in the land, neither living completely or on the land, but neither living completely in the water either. It is both. And so it brings chaos to the order that God very clearly created in Genesis 1. Does that make sense? So they're part of the... I just hate frogs. They're part of the fall. Don't make this worse than it is, dude. I'm causing more chaos. They are very... They are... Oops. All right, 16, verses 16 through 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. And the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. I do want to mention, I'm reading ESV. Yes. In the KJV, it says lice everywhere. It says 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I've seen, seen me in Lance's life too. Yeah. So, my head itch thinking about it. Yeah, so <laughs> this is a, so as much as I like the ESV, every English translation has something wrong with it. I'm going to be honest with you. So this is one of the things that's wrong with the ESV is that specifically for us in America, when we think of gnats, we think of these little flies that are tinier than a regular fly that come at us in swarms yeah, in the summertime. Oh my goodness, tell it's me about it, dude. It's so bad. Good source of protein, though. You think they get in your mouth? Yeah. 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 Get in your mouth? Yeah. Well, they get it everywhere. It's because they come in big swarms. Yeah. They get I mean, in my I've, seen, I've just never experienced them getting into You don't go outside eyes. enough. It's okay. Yeah. No, no, uh, they'll call it anything. I said, you don't go outside enough in the summer. It's okay. <laughs> At least not in the country. Yeah, so over water and in the country, Ariel, like in like where I grew up, gnats get everywhere. Everywhere. They don't, I know. I've seen them. I just avoid the swarms. That's, well, sometimes when you're in the country and over the, in the water, you, you cannot. You cannot. All right, so. Seb is the Elohim that's attacked here. He is the earth Elohim. Keep in mind, these lice, because they really are lice. They're not gnats. They are lice. They are getting on everything. They are making you itch. They are, they are hurting you, all right? Um, they're created when Aaron picks up the dust from the ground and throws it, and they become lice. So this is an attack on the earth Elohim, Seb, all right? I don't know what kind of head he has. Don't ask me. Um, <laughs> look, it up, look it up yourself, or I guess Cam is going to look at it. Um, so, uh, one of the things that we talked about earlier is that this strike is associated with the finger of God. The finger of God is what brings deliverance from demons. And we'll see the finger of God write the 10 commandments as well later on. All right. Um, this strike is where the magicians give up on duplicating what Yahweh does. So now when we think about the creation narrative, what does this look like to us? Think about creation. Does anybody notice anything specific here in this particular well, place? This is God made picking up the dust that's how he made Adam. Oh, you pooped. Yes. Sorry, I wasn't talking. <laughs> I was like, uh, I, no, I, I smell a stinky diaper. Seb is also known as Geb. Yeah. He's actually not depicted as having an animal head, but he has a goose on his head. Nice. <laughs> All right, so day six, Genesis 24 through 31, the creation of land animals and humans. Rather than bringing orderly animals out of the ground like Yahweh had done before, he brings a pestilence of insects to plague the land. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Questions, comments, concerns? Under an hour today. Let's pray and get out of here because the kids are antsy. Um, Abba, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you continue to reveal more of your glory and your power to us as we go through the rest of the 10, 10 plagues, 10 strikes. Um, we can't wait to see what happens when Pharaoh gets, gets struck out, uh, even though we already know. It's cool. No worries. Lord, we thank you. Um, we give you all the honor and glory and praise in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening, everybody. We hope today's podcast blessed you. And as always, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus.